I just don't know what to do. What do you mean? Like, what do we say? I don't know. Introduce yourself. You introduce yourself. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Welcome to our podcast, True Crimes and Story Times. I'm Michelle, and I'm Austin. And I'm doing my true crime episode today, and Austin is going to come along for the ride. Yes, ma'am. That's what I wanted to say. Today we're talking about the Florence Salon murders. Ever heard of it? I have not, other than you mentioning it to me throughout the week. So, this story, it's not even a story, this true crime story, starts in Florence, Missouri, which is a small town. It's heavily forested. Interesting. Mm-hmm. And it's a mostly white population. Yikes. 96% of the population identifies as white. That's a lot of white people. Mm-hmm. Well, depends on population yeah around 900 people lived in the town according to the 2000 census so not very many people yeah but that's i mean 96 percent is definitely a large chunk for sure this town is about 130 miles west of the state capital helena and it's also a short drive from idaho's northwestern border florence appeals to tourists because it's close to national forest Lolo Peak and St. Joseph Peak. Um, Florence is a place where you usually didn't worry about locking your door. It's such a small town. Right. Don't need to lock your door. And U.S. Highway 93 runs through Florence. And this is like their main road. So okay. if you had a business, this is where you'd want to be. Gotcha. Dorothy Harris was 62 years old. She was a chipper grandma who liked to craft. And that's probably going to be me when I get older. She owned a hair and nail salon called the Hair Gallery, which was located on U.S. Highway 93. So, she knew where it was at. It was an isolated building, but obviously it's on a fairly busy street. And by isolated, I mean it's not like in a strip mall or something. Gotcha. Just kind of on the side of the highway. Yeah. And it was closed on Sundays and Mondays. Praise the Lord. (laughs) Dorothy would make her bank runs on Tuesdays, since they were closed Sundays and Mondays. On the morning of November 6, 2001, Dorothy drove to her bank in Stevensville to make her weekly deposit. And Stevensville is about 10 miles south of Florence and about 8 miles from the salon. Gotcha. So about a 10-minute drive. not a very long drive. So around the afternoon of November 6, 2001, customer had an appointment around 11 a.m. So she pulled into the parking lot and she saw an oddly dressed man walking out the front door. Um, He was wearing a large black coat and possibly a top hat. Who wears top hats in 2001? I have no idea. (laughs) He was leaving through the front door, like I had said, and the customer just thought nothing of it at the time. Like, just kind of odd looking. Yeah, like, hmm, that outfit is interesting, you know. Right. 
So she parked in the parking lot, got out, and walked to the back door, which is known as the main entrance. Mm -hmm. Nobody really used the front door. She walked into the back door, and unfortunately, she discovered a body in the walkway. And this body would later be identified as the shop's owner, Dorothy Harris. Oh. And trigger warning, I'm going to talk a little bit about her death soon. Um, She was laying in a pool of her own blood and in the fetal position. That's sad. Yeah. The customer stepped over her body to get to the telephone and called 911 immediately. Mm -hmm. But when police arrived, they found two more bodies in the back of the salon. Damn. They were in a small utility room, and they were confirmed to be Brenda Patch and Cynthia Paulus. Imagine just, you know, looking forward to cleaning up the mop on your head. And I mean, you know, anytime you get a haircut, you feel so much confident afterwards. Mm-hmm. So it's a really I, feel-good thing to go do. But Right. I think the customer is actually getting her nails done. But still, yeah. going to get your hair done, going to get your nails done, it all makes you feel good. Self-care, yeah. Mm-hmm. Then you walk into the owner in a yeah. pool of her own blood. That's yeah. Brenda Patch was 44 years old, and she worked as a manicurist at the salon. And Cynthia Paulus was 71 years old. She was a customer, and she visited the salon on a weekly basis. She always had her appointments on Friday mornings, but decided to change it because she wanted to look nice for a University of Montana basketball game later in the evening. So, if she hadn't had that basketball game, she wouldn't have went, basically. Wow. It's amazing how just, like, with murders, something so simple can alter Mm -hmm. you being killed or not being killed. Yeah. That's scary. So, police thought these two women were in the shop alone when the perpetrator arrived. This person, trigger warning, by the way, led them into the utility room, and they had likely been forced to kneel. And the police would later refer to the utility room as a battle scene. And trigger a warning again, we're really going to get into how they died now. All three women were murdered with a sharp instrument. They all had their throats slit with deep incisions. Jeez. They had also suffered other injuries as well, but the police refused to elaborate on those details. But no sexual assault was found. That's good, I guess. Yeah. Good in a way. Like, they were killed, but... At least they weren't, like, sexually assaulted as well. Sure. Sheriff Perry Johnson would later say that the scene was horrific and that there was a tremendous amount of blood at the scene. Quote, Why this occurred, we simply don't know. What I fear is that this could be somebody that, for whatever reason, decided that it was a good day for some evil work. End quote. So, obviously, this crime scene shook the town of Florence. I mean, it's a small town. people. Mm-hmm. This type of violent crime was pretty much unheard of here, and let alone happening on the busiest street in town, so. And the fact that it's a town, not only a small town, but a town that you can leave your door unlocked and not have to worry about it, it's probably the least thing anyone Mm -hmm. would expect in a town like Florence. So my next line, everyone knew everyone and until now had no reason to lock their doors. (laughs) Sorry. That's okay. So, weird, but no items of value or money was missing. Um, the only thing that was not accounted for was two styling capes, and those are, like, very cheap. I wonder if the guy that the woman saw when she pulled into the parking lot, instead of wearing a black ch- trench coat, he was wearing... The styling capes? Styling oh my cape. gosh, I didn't even think of that. That's crazy. 
maybe he was wearing this um the styling capes when he murdered them so he didn't get blood on them yeah that's that's a good point so police started looking through personal and professional relationships with the three victims but found nothing that stood out to them they looked through financial statements insurance records and telephone records and they also collected dna samples from family members and friends and their palm prints um police found one lead a relative of Dorothy that she had a, quote, contentious relationship with. This lead led to a dead end, unfortunately, though. Mm. Um, nothing really came of it, so. That's all they really had about it. That's it. Yeah, I feel like you... Well, the police departments don't often get that lucky where they just find the first lead and that ends up being yeah the culprit. Right. So, detectives were having trouble trying to figure out the target of the attacks. And the police, they just struggled to connect the crime to any of these ladies, especially the salon owner. Like For sure. Who would want to murder three older right. ladies? Investigators believe she was not there when the attacker arrived, and it was unlikely that she had been, been the intended target. So, what they think happened was when she left the bank... He was already there, probably. And when she walked in, he was walking out. Interesting. So, he probably just killed her and left. And literally, right when that customer arrived, she had died just a few moments before. But and when she arrived, the girls in the utility room had just died moments before. So, he was there for... Well, why would he be there before well, she was even there? He took those other two ladies and killed them in the utility room before she even arrived. Oh, so, okay. He killed them before she even arrived. Yeah, and she arrived. Oh, well. And he killed her, and then the customer arrived right then and there. Like, she got there, like, pretty much right after he murdered her. Wow. Like she so was... this all happened within, like, 10, yeah. 15 minutes. So, police revealed that they found a bloody palm print at the scene, and that's why they took, like, the family's palm prints and friends and things like that. Right. They also found a pair of black sunglasses, and they were found right in the middle of the scene. And that is a quote from a police officer. They did release an image of the glasses, but they wouldn't reveal the exact location or any more information about the palm print because they were trying to keep things close to the chest. And if you don't know what that means, they basically want to use this in questioning later. Like if somebody says something, oh, I left my sunglasses here, like then bam, they know. Right. You know what I mean? Yep. That's smart. So, at this point, police did establish a suspect, um, and they would later turn into a person of interest in the investigation. So, you know, a suspect is just somebody that they're questioning. Mm -hmm. They don't really know. Doesn't necessarily mean they're guilty. Yeah, but a person of interest, they're, like, very interested in this person. They could definitely be guilty. Right. So, the description the customer gave was confirmed by other eyewitnesses who also added details of their own. He was described as being young, in his 20s or early 30s, tall, and with narrow facial features. Some believe due to the features, this could have been a woman pretending to be a man. But this was mostly just like chalked up to town gossip. They were just like, didn't really believe it. Right. And also it's quite rare for a woman to murder in such a graphic and Yeah, it's usually a lot of women murder by poisoning, <laughs> surprisingly. If they do murder at all. Right. Um, he was wearing a wide-brimmed hat, possibly a fedora or even a top hat. Again, who wears 
a top hat or even a fedora in 2001. A lot of people. I feel like fedoras were pretty popular. Yeah, fedoras definitely are more popular than top hats, but... So he was also wearing a black duster coat that was calf length. And if you don't know what a duster coat is, it's basically like a trench coat. Yeah. Um, several people recalled seeing him walk away from the salon around the time of the murder. And they also said he was walking with a purpose. <laughs> I mean, if it was after the murder, his purpose would be to get the hell out of there, I assume. Right. I don't I'm know. Kind of. Eyewitness accounts are not that great a lot of times. The whole fedora and top hat thing and walking with the purpose is making me think this really could be a woman trying to disguise herself as a man. Yeah. But who knows? So a bloodhound was brought out the day the bodies were discovered. Um, they were trying to track the suspect. They did catch a scent at the scene in the grass in the front of the salon and also on the side of the salon in an alley. The dog tracked the scent north through the dirt parking lot of Wild River, which is a local bar and restaurant. The dog then tracked him to the back streets of Florence and across the school parking lot. And I meant to put them, not him, because we don't really know. The scent was then lost in a pasture by One Horse Creek Road. And this was four blocks away from the crime scene. So they walked at least four blocks. That dog's got a really strong nose. Mm Mm-hmm. Some dogs can sniff out, like, computer chips and stuff. It's insane. Yeah, it's really crazy. The next day, another bloodhound was brought to the scene, and this bloodhound was able to find the scent in the pasture nearby One Horse Creek Road. And it also happened to lead them to a home across the street. But, unfortunately, the owner of the home was cleared as a suspect almost immediately. They were, like, physically unable to commit these crimes. So. This was an odd getaway route. An odd outfit and oddly disappearing entirely just a short distance away from the crime scene like they were abducted by aliens (laughs) investigators would later declare this individual a quote person of interest so not necessarily a suspect but their identity continues to elude police officials to this day Hmm. i already said they were a person of interest not a suspect but The Rivoli County Sheriff's Office was on the case from the very beginning. They have been credited in the years since for being open-minded throughout and reaching out to other authorities in an attempt to catch the killer. And a lot of times that's not normal because they want to solve it themselves. They don't want to have other people involved. In the immediate aftermath, the Sheriff's Office reached out to the members of the FBI, the U.S. Attorney's Office, the DEA, the U.S. Marshal Service, as well as other local law enforcement agencies for assistance. I think, you know, in the beginning of an investigation, they, law enforcement, or sorry, uh, police departments also don't want to reach out to surrounding police departments because as you're trying to keep everything close to your chest, you know, potentially reaching out to a, a police department that's nearby can also cause talk or yeah possible word to get out to like around to the killer and they could right that could help them that makes sense sheriff johnson stated that this was a common practice for him and his department who often tried to get ideas from those whose opinion differed from their own as it added to the strength of the investigation quote i've been wrong before i would never discount their opinions and i think that it lends itself to a more successful investigation The fact that people have the ability to speak their mind, 
Just because I'm the sheriff doesn't mean that I'm right. I don't have a crystal ball. End quote. Sheriff Johnson sounds like a great sheriff. Yeah. He's got a good vibe. <laughs> the FBI was called in to help police to create a profile of the killer. Sheriff Perry Johnson, once again, stated that the, this profile was helpful in trying to assist their search, but made it hard to pin down anyone specifically because the area was full of hunters and outdoorsmen. As such, it was rife with similar personality traits. Hmm. Quote, it may be somebody with efficiency who has training, but it may not. And they were very adamant about that. It doesn't have to be someone with special training, just someone who is invested and who is a cool, calm person to begin with. That might be one of those personality traits. Jerry Crago, a retired police captain from the Missoula County Sheriff's Office, assisted with the investigation in the early months. He stated about the profile developed by the FBI for this case, quote, I've used profiles and you know, they're pretty fascinating. The problem though in the end is that they don't have the name of the suspect at the bottom. You still don't have anybody to arrest, end quote. It's also... I mean, this was in November of 2001, mm-hmm. so it's shortly after 9-11, so it's kind of, I mean, I know the FBI is a pretty big uh, federal department, but it's for such a small town uh, in Missouri after 9-11 yeah. for the FBI to be like, okay, we'll lend a hand is pretty big. impressive because yeah, I sure. know they were extremely busy with mm-hmm. 9-11 or... Maybe it was an inside job, so they were like, had tons of free time. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> By the end of 2001, the Salon Triple Murder was becoming a local legend. Nothing like this had ever happened there. Townspeople had to face the fact that maybe it wasn't as safe as they thought. The month after the crime took place, in December of 2001, the case was featured on an episode of, quote, America's Most Wanted. Wow. Over the next several months, investigators and officials working the case, primarily within the Rivoli County Sheriff's Office, became split down the middle. Those on one half believed that the murders were committed by someone familiar with at least one of the victims. Their thinking was that the knives suggested intimacy and familiarity with one or more victims and was a personal attack on them. That is one of my biggest fears in life is being stabbed. Yeah. That's so scary. I'd much rather be shot. (laughs) Sheriff Perry Johnson was a fan of this theory, stating, quote, With a knife, you put your hands on people. It doesn't give you the ability to be a bystander at your own crime. You have to be personally invested. It's a whole different element than with a firearm. And that's part of the reason why I'm so terrified of it, because it's so up close and personal. Yeah. Well, I'm not planning on stabbing you, so we're good. I got my eye on you. (laughs) But on the other side of this divide were investigators and officials that believed that the crime to be random, a senseless murder driven by an unknown or unapparent motive. After all, no motive had been discovered by investigators as the crime didn't seem to be driven by either robbery or sexual assault. Officials at the FBI struggled to find any other similar crime, which took the lives of three or more victims, which also had no apparent motive. This made it hard to track, at least as far as U.S. crimes go. Sheriff Perry Johnson again stated, quote, There may be triple homicides and there may be cases that look and sound like this, but there are no cases like this. The dynamic just doesn't exist anywhere around. We haven't found a sister case, a twin case, any kind of case that comes right back to us and says, you guys should be looking in this direction. So now we're going to talk about a, a different town for a second. Okay. 
Great Bend, Kansas is a town very similar to Florence, Montana, but they have a much larger population than Florence. They have about 15,000 residents compared to Florence's 900. Mm-hmm. It's about 1,300 miles away from Florence, and Great Bend is located generally in like the center of Kansas. It has a number of U.S. highways that intersect with it, and Route 56 runs throughout Great Bend. On the afternoon of September 4th, 2002, a customer was pulling into the parking lot of the Dolly Madison Cake Discount Bakery. Just like the Florence Hair Gallery, it was a standalone building, so no strip malls or anything. It was pretty isolated. Mm -hmm. As the customer pulled into the parking lot, she saw an unfamiliar man locking the front door. This customer had been here before and had never seen that man working. She got out of her car and approached the front door, but the unfamiliar man told her that the bakery was closed for the day. This woman found it odd for the bakery to be closing so early in the afternoon, but she thought little of it at the time. I'm sorry, but if you... If something just feels off and you see an unfamiliar man at a place that you, you know, visit quite often, uh, why just not wait until that man leaves? Right. And then be like, I think we need a, um, what do they call those? A courtesy check or something. I don't know. Call the police and be like, I think something's wrong. Right. Later that evening, a delivery man entered the bakery. Bakery? Bakery. 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 Later that evening, a delivery man entered the bakery through a back door. Just inside, he found the bodies of two women. Mandy Alexander, just 24 years old, was the mother of two young children who had been working as the bakery's clerk for all three, all, all of three days. Wow. So she had not been working there that long. And that's really sad that she's a mother of two. Mm-hmm. Mary Drake, 79 years old, was a customer that had been picking up some bread that afternoon and had not yet returned home. Uh, trigger warning, I'm going to talk about how they died. Both women had been stabbed to death and were lying face down in pools of their own blood. <laughs> Much like the salon murders up in Florence, a motive in this double murder was hard to determine. Investigators were able to find a tiny amount of money missing from the bakery, but the purses and wallets belonging to both Mandy and Mary had been untouched. And they're also seemed to be no sign of sexual assault taking place before or after the women were killed. Again, that's good. Yeah. Dean Akings, the police chief of Great Bend, stated, quote, There was money missing out of the cash register, and that, as far as motive is concerned, is all we know. For what was taken out of there, if robbery was a motive, there's a whole lot of other places they could go for a whole lot more money. Most shocking to police was the realization that, just like the crime up in Florence, the killer had struck the bakery during a busy time period, the evening rush, sometime between 5.15 and 6 o'clock p.m. Police got in contact with the customer that saw the strange man locking up the bakery that afternoon. She was able to supply investigators with information about the man. She was also able to help create a composite sketch. This sketch was distributed throughout the area and stated, The suspect stood about 6'1", weighed about 175 pounds, had light brown or blonde collar-length hair, and was somewhere between 30 and 35 years old. This information got to an employee who worked for a motel just a short distance away from the bakery. He said that a man had checked in on the day of the murders and had checked out the next day. The employee noted that this man had shaved his head before checking out. And he had, like, long hair. Right. That's Collar-length hair, and then he (laughs) shaved it. That's not suspicious at all? No. 
So just like the Salon murders in Florence, this double murder has remained unsolved. Investigators have confirmed that the two cases have been linked in the years since, but because of the lack of any motive, it is hard for them to find comparisons. No details have been released about how the two bakery victims were killed. The police just released they were stabbed, but they Mm -hmm. didn't give any additional details. Right. Um, Over the next few years, the triple murder in Florence continued to bother investigators, obviously. Eventually... A new sheriff was elected. Oh. Yeah, I know, right? Chris Hoffman took over as a sheriff for Rivoli County, and Perry Johnson, who had been open and active with the case from the beginning, moved back into a position as one of the county's lead detectives. So he wasn't going anywhere. That's good. It wasn't until 2005 that any news broke regarding the unsolved crime from the hair and nail salon. This is when police announced that they had developed a lead suspect and they were actively preparing for charges to be filed. I bet the culprit was shaking in his boots when he read or heard that. For sure. Brian Walter Weber, who had been born in Arizona, grew up in Florence, Montana. At the time of the murders in 2001, he had been living in Nampa, Idaho, a city near Boise, roughly 375 miles away. He grew up in Florence, Montana or Missouri? Oh, Missouri. Oh, See, okay. I told you, I must have forgot in the middle of the story that M.O. is Missouri, not Montana. My bad. That's okay. That's easily... That's easy to mess up. Yeah. I mean, M.O., Montana, Missouri. Yeah. You would think Missouri would be like M.I. M.I. or something, yeah. At the time, Brian, who was in his mid-20s, had became become a small-time drug dealer. He dealt mostly methamphetamine. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if that's a small-time drug dealer. Nope. Um, he also used it and became an addict of the substance as well, which is usually what happens. Right. Because of his meth addiction, he began slipping into the world of not only crime, but violence. Those that knew him said he was a violent man who began committing petty crimes to help support his habits, such as robbery and theft. However, in his words, quote, I would never kill someone, end quote. Sounds like something a murderer would say. (laughs) During the first week of November in 2001, Weber visited the area of Missoula with his girlfriend. This girlfriend at one point had a restraining order against him for domestic violence. But apparently they had made up in this time at this time. That doesn't sound toxic at all. Nope. Brian said that they made up they made the trip for business relating to his drug dealing, but this visit would put him on the map of investigators. So they're like Oh, okay, you were over here? Cool. Good to know. It was Thanksgiving Day when he was asked if he would come in to cooperate with investigators and answer some questions about the Florence murders. Brian went to the interview, gave a sample of his DNA, and agreed to a search of the van he had been driving. Well, that's a good sign. Yeah. On his part. Quote, they asked me if there was any reason why my DNA would be in that building. End quote. Maybe he shot up meth in that building. Who knows? Brian admitted that he was familiar with the building since Florence was a very small place. But he hadn't been inside that building since it was a post office when he was a child. If that's true, that's amazing that his DNA is still in that building. That'd be crazy. Well, they didn't say it was. They just asked me if there was any reason why. Oh, I see. I got you. Years later, Brian would admit that he was high on meth during the interview and couldn't remember how or why investigators had originally suspected him in the murders. (laughs) What the fuck? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to just get high on meth and then go to the police department. <laughs> Sounds exactly idiot. like something a meth addict would do. Literally. 
Shortly after this interview took place, Brian tried to give up his life of crime and drug use and moved to California. However, within months, he returned to Missouri, where he began dealing drugs once again. It's a vicious cycle. Mm-hmm. In November of 2003, Brian was arrested for brutally assaulting a man named Keegan Strelnick, which happened to be a meth deal gone wrong. He was charged with beating Keegan with a partner until they, quote, apparently got tired of assaulting him, end quote. Wow. Brian's bail was set, as 100, set at 100000 and his charges were listed as aggravated burglary and aggravated assault. In May of 2004, he accepted a plea deal, which took down his charges to felony burglar- burglary. <laughs> Why am I having so much trouble? Burglary and misdemeanor assault and gave him a three-year sentence of probation. Like, you should not get probation for beating someone. No kidding. Jennifer Clark, the deputy of Missoula County Attorney, said that federal investigators had expressed a personal interest in Brian and had urged her to try and keep Brian up for as long as possible. So, try to keep him in jail or in trouble for as long as possible. Right. The reasoning for that became very clear just a month or so later when Brian was charged with new crimes in July of 2004. The charges included possession of dangerous drugs with intent to distribute, but he would later be linked to two separate incidents involving large-scale meth operations. Hmm. In December of 2004, Brian was convicted in the U.S. District Court of Conspiracy to Distribute Meth with a sentencing set for the following year. He was facing a lot of jail time, with the possibility of spending a third of his life behind bars. I guess that kind of makes up for the... Him getting off pretty much scot-free after beating a man until he got tired of beating the man. Right. So, in May of 2005, Brian's sentencing came to a close, and he was given 24 years and three months in federal prison for this most recent conviction. Because of the stringent laws in the U.S. for drug felonies, he would most likely end up serving most of his sentence. That's more like it. Yep. It was at around this time that an anonymous source began communicating with a local paper, the Missoulian. This source stated in regards to the active state of the triple murder at the Florence Hair Salon from nearly four years prior, quote, they've got the guy locked up, so there's no real hurry. They've got the time to make sure they've got it all right before they go ahead, end quote. It was later in this year, November of 2005, that Brian's name officially surfaced as a suspect in the salon murders. Didn't know if you knew that was coming. I didn't. Well, I definitely wouldn't have been talking about him that much if it wasn't. (laughs) Wait, I'm confused. What? What are you confused about? You, I don't know, just the way you asked me that. It just threw me off guard. Sorry. No, you're good. Brian was a component of the Rivoli County's investigation into the murders as they explored links, namely drug traffickers, to the violent murders of Dorothy Harris, Brenda Patch, and Cynthia Paulus. R.I.P. R.I.P. for sure. Brian, who had been singled out due to the alleged remarks he had made to two different sources in prison, was being investigated as the main culprit. Don't run your mouth in prison. Yeah, not a good idea. But please do if you do something like this so you can get in trouble. Of course. And now the entire area was aware of this, the investigator's interest in him for the violent crimes. Brian, who pled his innocence, told the same paper that outed his identity, quote, The bottom line is that I've done a lot of bad things, but I never did those murders, end quote. 
That's exactly what a murderer would say. The bottom line. Throughout 2000, throughout 2006, the case continued to unfold. Rivoli County officials had enlisted the help of an inmate from Missoula County Jail to assist them in their investigation. I bet that inmate felt like a badass. I don't know. He was probably paranoid as fuck. Yeah. His name was Perry Willingham. Um, the last name, <laughs> bruh, you sound fancy AF. The whole name, Perry Willingham? Seriously. <laughs> he had been arrested in October of 2005 for making meth in his hotel room as well as forging legal documents. Not so fancy. Nope. Since his arrest, he had been cooperating with Rivoli County investigators and had been feeding them information about Brian. A listening device was installed in a jail cell he shared with Brian, and he was supplying them with extra statements allegedly made by him. However, word of his involvement in the ongoing murder investigation had made it back to Brian himself, and Perry alleged that Brian made threats against his own life. So. Against Brian's life? Brian made threats to Perry. Okay. Yeah. At least I think, I think that's it. That makes sense. Well, I think that's also it because he asked to be moved to a jail in Rivoli County, but had to be asked for another move when he became aware of Brian's connections in that jail as well. Gotcha. 2006 is when Brian received some good news, unfortunately. Due to some legalities exploited by his lawyers, one of the two convictions from the year prior was dismissed, and his 24-year sentence became a 10-year sentence with much more lenient parameters. Damn. So that 24-year sen sentence he got... Not anymore. Dude, fucking lawyers, man, I swear. Like. They either save the day or completely ruin it. Right. The timeline that investigators had created for themselves was crunched. They began rushing to put together their entire case against Brian for the triple murder. Now we're going to talk about somebody else. Lincoln Christopher Benavides was born in Idaho and abandoned by his father as a child. He lived with his mother and sister, and he began using drugs at the age of nine. Damn. Yeah. This would jumpstart his addiction going forward. In his early teenage years, he became the sole caretaker of his younger sister. That's a lot of responsibility. While you're using drugs at such a young age. Mm-hmm. That's scary. They lived on the street for a period of time. Lincoln got into his first legal trouble at the age of 13. At the age of 17, he moved into an Idaho foster home. This foster home was run by a woman named Donna Elizen. Donna, who had cared for over 200 children as a foster parent, said that she had a special bond with Lincoln and hoped for him to turn his life around. Quote, When he came to our house, he was standoffish, and as he stayed there, he tried hardest of all the boys to make a difference in himself. He came not knowing what to expect, and he left with a dream. In his dream was being a better, more successful man than the father that had abandoned him. Well, that's... He sounds like a really self-aware young man. Yeah, seriously. Well, I think experience is what... Like, you know, they say age is wisdom, but, like, I also think experience is wisdom. Absolutely. Unfortunately, Lincoln had a number of mental and emotional issues, and his dream became corrupted by his personal demons. That sucks. He began selling drugs as a young adult, eventually moving on to head, oh, heed a small drug syndicate that sold meth across Idaho and Montana. And this is where he came into contact with Brian. Not good. Not good. 
Roughly six and a half years after the murders of the three women in Florence, Montana hair salon, charges were filed. It was April of 2008 in the Russell Smith Courthouse of Missoula, Missouri. Prosecutors laid out their case against the two suspects in a 15-page indictment. The charges alleged that 33-year-old Lincoln was a leader of a drug distribution ring that operated throughout Idaho and Montana between 1999 and 2001, and that 31-year-old Brian was a small-time dealer and distributor who occasionally worked as a violent enforcer for the organization. The indictment read, quote, On occasion, Brian would threaten other dealers or beat them in order to facilitate the collection of money for the organization. On occasion, Brian Weber and Lincoln Benavides would together threaten or beat someone, end quote. Until they got tired of beating that person. Yeah. Brian was already serving a 10-year federal sentence for meth distribution while Lincoln was in the middle of a 15-year state sentence for drug dealing. With this indictment, they were facing additional charges of conspiracy to distribute meth, distribution of illegal narcotics, and then three charges of each of violent crimes in aid of racketeering and murder while engaged in drug trafficking. That last charge, murder while engaged in drug trafficking, could possibly result in the death penalty. The indictment offered up very little direct evidence pointing to the two men's involvement in the murder. It said that the murders were committed in an effort to collect on a drug debt. The exact details were kept sealed by the court, and officials promised that those details would come to light in the upcoming trial. So basically, they had trouble for collecting a drug debt. The indictment also seemed to stress a very light connection between Lincoln and the murders. The indictment stressed that he didn't have any direct involvement in the violent crimes. It said that he, quote, counseled, commanded, induced, or procured the killings of the victims. Which, in my opinion, you are just as guilty as the person that Yeah, that's like saying Charles Manson isn't guilty because he fucking (laughs) directed all those people, you know. If If you're smart enough to, you know, make a plan and facilitate and to carry out that plan Mm -hmm. whether it be you like actually doing the hands-on work right it doesn't matter you're still you're still directing them you're the brain behind the operations you know literally the prosecutors also pointed out that both men had fled the area shortly after the murders took place brian went to california lincoln left the country entirely before resurfacing in texas months later again that's very suspicious I also pointed to their involvement in drug trafficking and prior violent acts as a guideline of their behavior. The charges included in the indictment were primarily based on the statements from informants and in jailhouse snitches. But also, if they're saying that they were collecting a drug debt, which one of those ladies was doing meth? Right. <laughs> That's what I want to know. The only drugs that any of those ladies were ever doing was probably just the fumes of the nail salon seriously and the hair dye (laughs) defense attorneys for lincoln and brian immediately filed motions asking for a dismissal of the charges calling the broader conspiracy presented by prosecutors improper these defense attorneys also accused the prosecution of quote outrageous government misconduct end quote pointing to a number of borderline illegal acts perpetrated against Brian and Lincoln while they had been in prison, including invasions of privacy and their constitutional rights. So saying they put that bug in there, and that's against their rights. But I don't think when you're in prison, you don't, like, yeah, everyone should have basic human rights. Clean water, clean bed, 
but food you know but like you get all that but if you're you know a suspect in a murder yeah triple murder yeah you should be able to be bugged and listened to 100 percent. yeah i mean you're in jail yeah i mean people in jail still have rights no i agree no especially if he killed people and he's an enforcer for this drug whatever it's Mm. like I'm fine with like, the government bugging to try to solve a murder. I mean, the government's listening to us all the time anyway, so... What up, Gov? <laughs> My FBI agent is like... <gasps> you mean Federal Bureau of Investigation <laughs> agent? In June of 2009, the deadline passed in which prosecutors could have pursued the case as a capital murder crime. This meant that the option of them pushing for the death penalty was now permanently off the table. I... I'm not sure how I feel about the death penalty. I mean, part of me, yes, you murdered someone and you're getting Mm -hmm. your life taken away Mm -hmm. for it. But also at the same time, it kind of seems like that's just, I think we've talked about it before, just kind of like a release. And they, yeah, I don't think they should be murdered. I think some people like if they've done like really bad shit, like, like mass murder, raping children, raping people in general, like, yeah a serial rapist or something like that oh yeah but honestly even then i'd just like to see him rot in prison because they hate it they hate being there but then again some people some i mean murderers and Mm -hmm. just psychotic people in general some of them don't really mind jail time i think i mean yeah it depends like charles manson begged to be back in jail not to bring well, him up again, but that's, that's where he was basically at his whole freaking life. So, I mean, Charles Manson's fucking yeah. insane. I think he tried to play it up, too, obviously, because he was psychotic in the first place. I just yeah. think he tried to play it up to make himself look even crazier because of the media and stuff, you know? He's I'm not saying he's not a crazy dude. I'm just saying I think he sure. definitely played it up to try to make himself look scarier. Oh, for sure. He's certainly a character. <laughs> So, rumor has it that the decision to not pursue the death penalty in this case came directly from top officials in the U.S. Department of Justice, including Eric Holder, which was Attorney General for the United States. I've heard that name before. Yeah, I thought I did too, but I didn't really, like, go into it. Mm -hmm. The U.S. Attorney's Office of Missouri seemed to lend credence to these rumors in a statement which read, quote, "...decisions regarding whether the United States will seek the death penalty are vested in the Attorney General." By today's filing, we have informed the court and the defendants that we will not be seeking the death penalty against either defendant. End quote. However, shortly after this decision was made public, the original indictment from the year before was amended to include a couple of changes. It alleged that the drug ring geez, it alleged that the drug ring created by Lincoln had endured until two thousand four instead of two thousand one and levied 20 additional charges of drug trafficking and racketeering against the two men. Both Lincoln and Brian continued to claim they were innocent and pled not guilty to all of the charges. Well, of course. In October of 2009, Lincoln accepted a plea deal. As a part of this plea deal, he pleaded guilty to two federal drug charges, conspiracy to distribute meth and distributing meth, but all of their charges were dropped. So the murder charges? Yeah, they were dropped. That's fucked. Prosecutors recommended a sentence of 30 years for the two felony counts, but it seemed like they were becoming less and less sure of the murder case, and this plea deal was only proof of that in the public eye. 
Man. Tim Foley, a federal defender from California who served on Lincoln's legal team, claimed that the murder wa- case was, quote, hijacked by lying jailhouse informants and investigators whose zealotry outstripped their ethics. Is that how you say that? Zealotry? Zealotry? Uh, let me see. Like overzealous? Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, never mind. We're just going to roll with it. Quote, Mr. Benavides has always denied any involvement in or culpability for the Florence homicides and, of course, pled not guilty to the charges and the indictment relating to that event. End quote. Throughout the area, many residents of Florence and those that knew the victims expressed outrage at the case against one of the two suspects seemingly being dropped for good. Jay Harris, the son of murder victim Dorothy Harris, stated about the plea deal, it is what it is, and there's nothing we can do about it. I'd rather have them in prison than walking free. That's a pretty heavy quote coming from the son of Dorothy. Yeah, it's really sad. Like, he's like, he okay, well, it's yeah, sucks. he's like, what am I going to do? Like, I can't do anything, mm-hmm. but at least they're in prison. Yeah. Months later, Lincoln appeared in court for his sentencing hearing after accepting the plea deal in October 2009. Judge Donald Malloy, who handed down a sentence of 25 years, stressed that this was a sentence unrelated to any allegations made against him. Quote, this is a drug conspiracy and a drug conviction that Mr. Benavides is being sentenced for. He's being sentenced for no other allegation or connection or association. This is a drug offense only. End quote. Lincoln was well aware that he had likely taken his last steps as a free man. Nonetheless, he was looking forward to the chance of being released while still relatively young and mentioned the good that his stay in prison had done for him personally. Quote, I would like to express sincere remorse for what I did. I made some very regretful decisions. Now that I have been away from the drug environment, I can see how much harm they do. I believe my exposure to drugs via my family background had a lot to do with the decisions I made, but that does not excuse him. When I was charged with the homicide of those three elderly women, even though I was innocent, I thought my life was over, giving my past experience with law enforcement and the system. As funny as this may sound, now I'm glad for this whole experience. It almost sounds... The first sentence of that quote almost sounds like a... A a confession? Confession, yeah. Yeah. As funny as this may sound, none of it sounds funny. Right. At all. Like, there... It's... You were a suspect for multiple murders there. You mm-hmm. should not use the word funny. Right. If Even if you are innocent. Like, mm-hmm. it's not a laughing matter. And it's you're funny. glad for this whole experience? Why are you glad? Because you didn't get charged for the murder that right. you probably did, allegedly? Right. I would like to express my... Or express... I would like to express sincere remorse for what I did. Yeah. What do you really do, though? Despite charges being dropped against Lincoln, the trial against Brian was expected to go forward. In December of 2009, lawyers for Brian filed legal motions to have the murder charges against him dropped. Their attempt was unsuccessful, but was able to have two of the federal drug charges filed against him dropped. This was exposed as an issue with the statute of limitations, as the charges had been filed in October of 2006, when he was still in prison for his 2004 conviction, but weren't unsealed until nearly two years later, in April of 2008. As such, the charges were no longer valid. 
In the legal motions filed at the tail end of 2009, Brian alleged that the charges against him were based on, quote, a whole bunch of hearsay from fellow prisoners, end quote. And sadly, he wasn't too far off the mark. Hmm. On January 22, 2010, federal prosecutors filed a motion to dismiss all of the remaining charges against Brian. In this motion, they stated that, quote, the government cannot prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Brian was responsible for the violent triple murder. It came to light that the only witness that could provide a motive for the crime, a woman named Emily Ross, had passed away in 2008. R.I.P. Emily? Mm-hmm. The rest of their witnesses, who consisted of jailhouse snitches and drug-using informants, were deemed to have a number of credibility issues, issues which would have exposed the fragility of the prosecutor's case and trial. Yeah, I don't... I don't think inmates are ever really very credible. No. Joseph Thagard, an assistant U.S. attorney, also stated that new evidence had been provided by the defense, which seemed to undermine the state's case. This evidence led them to believe that Brian might have been out of state when the murders took place. In the press, it said that the charges against Brian were dismissed without prejudice. So basically, future charges could be filed if the U.S. attorney's office found more evidence. But at this time, Brian was able to prepare for his freedom. Al Av... Avignon. That one's a hard one. A lawyer that was part of Brian's legal team stated, The case is done, and it might be done forever. It had been our contention from the beginning that Mr. Weber is in fact innocent, and we are extremely grateful that the charges have been dismissed. Rivoli County Sheriff's Criff... Criff? (laughs) Chris Hoffman. Criff. Criff Hoffman. (laughs) Chris Hoffman, who had been in charge of the investigation for around five years, stated about this development, This case is not closed, and we remain committed to the families of our victims and our community to bring a successful resolution to this investigation. We will continue to apply the resources of this office to that end, no matter how long it takes. The Ravalli County Sheriff's Office will continue to work with all of our law enforcement partners. We will continue to investigate all information that becomes available for further follow-up. This case will remain open until it is resolved. Well, he can talk the talk. I sure hope he can walk the walk. Yeah. And good old Perry Johnson, who had been Rivali Sharf. (laughs) Sharf. Oh, wait, Perry Johnson. That's his name, right? There was two Perrys. Yeah, there's two Perrys. It confused me. I just realized that. (laughs) Sharf. Did you say Sharif? <laughs> I didn't catch that because I was too confused about the two I said Perry's. Perry Johnson, who had been Ravali Sharif. <laughs> <laughs> Sheriff, when the triple murder took place, had since resumed work for the county as a detective and now as the undersheriff. He responded to this news as well. This investigation has always been about our victims, the families of our victims, and our neighbors and our community. The focus and efforts of the sheriff's office and our law enforcement partners will continue toward the apprehension and prosecution of the people responsible for the murders of Dorothy Harris, Brenda Patch, and Cynthia Paulus. They won't be forgotten. R.I.P. Once again. Following the dismissal of the charges against Brian, the court records were sealed by Judge Donald Malloy. Many in the community believe that this act, sealing the records beyond criticism or reproach, is indicative of indicative of one two things jeez i couldn't spit that out 
The first is that the investigators believe that Weber is responsible for the killing of the three women, but they have never had nearly enough evidence to convict him. Weber, Brian. That by merely charging him and an acquaintance with the crimes, they were hoping for a Hail Mary confession and seeing what their trace amounts of evidence could get them. The second and more damning possibility is that the records were sealed to protect the sheriff's department and federal prosecutors from an embarrassing revelation. If that's the case, then that is so ridiculous. It's alleged by local journalists that the two might have used false information in order to obtain an indictment from a grand jury and knew that if the issue was pressed in open court, it could result in a bombshell from the defense attorneys and potential punishment or career fallout for the officials involved. It has not been determined why the records were sealed because the case has remained dormant in the nearly decade since. Wow. Well, it's been more than a decade now. It's been two decades. Yeah. More than two decades now. Seriously. In 2012, Brian was allowed supervised release from prison. He was then released from prison and entered probation. The next year in 2013, Brian was arrested for violating his probation, so it really didn't take very long. He had allegedly given drugs to a former convicted felon named Savannah Ryan and had allowed her to use his computer, which he used to post an advertisement for sex work. Nice. He was able to dodge that bullet and after getting released, moved to Great Falls, Missouri. Or Montana. I don't know if I put Montana because I've been putting Montana this whole time. I imagine it's probably Missouri. No, it's Montana. It's like the first thing that pops up. That's probably why I kept putting Montana. Yeah, probably. There he got married, but was abusive throughout the entire five-year relationship with to his now ex-wife. He continued to be in and out of jail for minor offenses. He went right back to drug use and drug dealing. According to his ex-wife, he began selling marijuana and bath salts. What the fuck? That's a... That's a totally different change <laughs> from meth, but then also to sell bath salts. And weed, like that. <laughs> Usually, it's like weed and coke. Yeah, bath salts. Weed and psychedelics or something. <laughs> That's bath weird. Salts. In February of 2017, after a long developing feud with his wife and her family, Brian was arrested and charged with felony intimidation. Brian had allegedly been threatening to destroy the homes of both his wife and his wife's sister, and if found guilty, he could face ten years in prison and a fifty thousand dollar fine. In November of 2017, Brian was arrested as part of an FBI sting, which resulted in eight individuals being arrested as a part of a major drug sting. Brian was charged with conspiracy to possess with intent to distribute controlled substances and possession with intent to distribute. Ain't shit changed. Nope. Because of the serious nature of this crime and Brian's prior criminal history, he is now facing life in prison with up to $10 million in fines and five years supervised release. Damn. But if he's facing life in prison, how is he going to get five years supervised release? Right. That's interesting. Many critics of the investigation point to Brian. Brian's continued... Brian's continued criminal history as being an indicator of his guilt in the Florence Salon murders, while others argue that he has never faced a courtroom for the crime. Investigators have made no apparent progress over the last several years. This case has been linked to other similar crimes, such as the 2002 double murder in Great Bend, Ar- Kansas. I almost said Arkansas. 
and a 2005 triple murder in Belleville, Illinois, but that case seems to have some motive related to another illegal drug operation in addition to having a number of suspects. Hmm. Bill Buzzle, who was the undersheriff for Rivoli <laughs> County at the time of the murders. Wait, we can't just roll by Bill Buzzle. That's <laughs> oh a hell of a last name. It is. I've worked a lot of homicides. It always amazed me what it takes to solve one. Sometimes just a little detail and sometimes it's just handed right to you. It's hard for me to not personalize it. When you're invested in the community, it's tough not to. Nobody deserves to die like that. Nobody deserves what those people got. I don't think I've had a three-hour block of time that I haven't thought about it. Perry Johnson, another quote from him. I'm not going to quit following every lead and I'm not going to quit hoping. This is a big deal. This is somebody's grandma. This is somebody's sister. This is somebody's mom. End quote. So, that is it. And if you have any information about this triple homicide, um, you can contact Rivoli County Sheriff's officials through their non-emergency number, which is 406-363-3033. And... I put a picture at the bottom so you can see. Yeah, I'm looking at the police sketch of the Oh yeah. the suspect and it's police sketches are always so like frightening just because mm-hmm. obviously it's the sketch but you you know that this person is a murderer. Mm-hmm. So I feel like automatically anytime I look at a police sketch for um a murder I just the eyes always get to me because they are just so dead right it's creepy isn't it it's very creepy and the pictures of the ladies that were murdered they seem like such nice ladies just from looking at the pictures just makes you think of like your grandma or something you know seriously i couldn't imagine like how could you murder anyone but obviously anyone but like older ladies yeah well one of them was only like 44 yeah that's not old but I just think it's crazy that, like, the customer literally arrived, like, right after Dorothy was murdered. Like, saw the guy walking out. That's so scary. It really is. Thankfully, that customer was okay. Like, she didn't. Yeah. Thankfully, the guy walked out before she arrived because she would probably also be dead. It's just amazing that, you know, she saw him and she just felt weird. Like, she got a vibe just because she just... Yeah, but she brushed it off, but that's okay. I mean, I probably would have done the same thing. I would have been like... You don't suspect to walk into a murder when you're going yeah. to get your nails done. You don't ever suspect to walk into a murder at any time, I don't think. Like Literally. That's it's weird. just weird. But yeah, that is the Florence Salon murders. I hate cold cases so much. Yeah, me too. But that's like quite a few that I've just I've talked about so far. Yeah, I mean, it's... I think what really sucks about cold cases, I mean, obviously, other than not having the murder behind bars or, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? But also the fact that as time goes on, it becomes harder and harder and harder and harder to to pinpoint who exactly did it. Right. And I feel like as also as time goes on, the the files kind of get pushed back Mm -hmm. further and further into the department and it just kind of becomes a... A shadow of well because people die off you know like even like the investigators die off and then if they have any information that they 
didn't write down or that they knew like then it's gone forever and the people that you can interview are also gone for forever so it's like hard to investigate anything once it's been so long right and i feel like at the time of a murder when you are a detective or an investigator you you kind of have like a that's your duty you know i mean you're supposed to that's your your job is to solve crimes Mm -hmm. and you know like you said as investigators die off from the department or whatever as time goes on for cold cases and new investigators move in i feel like those new investigators don't quite have the same attachment to that case as yeah. the people that right experienced because it they it weren't happened. there right that so definitely makes sense cold cases are just the worst yeah they suck well that's it that's the florence lawn murders rest in peace to dorothy brenda and cynthia yep and I hope, I still hope this this case is solved eventually, but mm-hmm. if not, then I hope karma comes around for that murder or murders. Yeah. Murderers. For sure. I do too. I really do. My stomach is crumbling because I'm hungry. <laughs> Me too. Every time you read Rivoli County, mm-hmm. I read... Ravioli. Ravioli <laughs> County. That's how hungry we That's are. That's funny. Right yeah, seriously, we're starving. So... Thanks for listening, guys. Um, it was a doozy. Definitely. They always are. Absolutely. Unfortunately. But um, it's better when they're solved. I'm going to try to do a solved case soon. Yeah, you got to let So the people... I can balance it out. Yeah. You got to have some success at the end of the mm-hmm. story. All right, guys. See you Wednesday. And Kirsten will be back. Yep. No more me. Sad face. He'll come back soon at some point. It depends. Who knows? (laughs) Maybe Logan will have to fill in for me one of these days. Yeah. Logan, if you hear me right now, you better do good research if you fill in for me. Okay? Okay. All right, guys. Thanks for listening. All right, guys. Take care. Bye.